0: Don't hesitate on your drink. It's
1: worth the whistle. Um, It's your house. (laughs) Welcome to Making It an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. I am so excited to introduce to you one of the most fascinating multi hyphenate artists I've had the pleasure to meet, Minka Wiltz. She is a singer, actor, writer, voiceover artist, and fellow podcaster from Atlanta, now living in Bloomington, Indiana. Though she trained and identified as a singer throughout her childhood, Minka moved to New York, cutting college short after becoming disillusioned about what they could teach her. She trained at the Negro Ensemble Company and became a prolific actor of new works with a resume that is basically a catalog of the stages in Atlanta, and with awards from around the Atlanta area recognizing her for her performances. She is also a playwright, creating, among others, a trilogy of plays about her life, the first of which was a one-woman musical, Shaking the Wind, which was extended more than a year after its original closing date due to popular demand. Aside from her podcast, she starred in the scripted podcast The Seventh Daughter, produced by iHeartRadio, which reached the top 10 scripted podcasts on iTunes. I had the pleasure of finding out about her while I was creating a sort of catalog of podcasts made by artists in the realm of classical and opera music for the blog 360 of Opera. As I was researching, learning about all these opera podcasts, I began to get frustrated with myself that I wasn't finding as many podcasts by artists of color. What was I missing? Where should I be looking? So I networked. My former guest, Jamie Alleylaw, turned me on to Minka Wiltz's Cultural Workers podcast, a podcast linking the principles of workers' rights and what it takes to build a life as an artist in a culture that rarely recognizes or values art for the work it takes to produce. As I dove into who this woman was, I became fascinated by her journey and her art. I reached out, and though she no longer lives in Atlanta, We got to meet up while she was here on a gig in February, and that's where we discovered we're definitely kindred spirits. This spring, she released this beautiful work of art, a video concert called Heal, Hope, Love, a program of songs that take you on a journey through each of the subjects in the title. You can watch for free on her website, minkawilts.com, and in just one week, on June 9th, you will be able to download the audio for free. And I highly recommend you do. In a sea of recorded concerts put out during COVID in the desperation of the moment, some with beautiful intentions to connect, others out of a sense of obligation to stay in front of an audience, this performance stands out to me as one that took its time. Well produced and recorded thanks to a grant from the city of Bloomington and full of heart and honesty. thanks to an artist who holds her heart and honesty as her highest priorities. It is truly a balm for the soul
2: And look it's here One verse is done The work's begun. come to sing a song about hope in spite of everything ridiculous and sad though I'm beyond belief, regret, confused and mad well I got dressed I underestimated how much that would take I didn't break until right now I sing of hope, and don't know how. Well, maybe I could substitute strength, because I'm strong, I'm strong enough. I got through lots of things I didn't think I could, and so did you. true, And so we sing a song about hope Though I can't guarantee there's something real behind it I've got to try and show my daughters I can find it And so today, when life is crazy and impossible to bear must be there. Fear never wins. That's what I hope. See, I said hope. The work
1: begins.
0: You're gorgeous. It's so good I'm to see welcome. you. It's so wonderful to
1: see you too. You look lovely as well.
0: Thank you. I've been trying. I've been trying. Um, thank you for having me on this. This is so neat. Oh, thank you. That you do this.
1: I love doing it. It's been really, I've realized what it is for me is a sandbox. Like learning from people who do really cool stuff. Yeah. So I can be one of those people. Like you all are teaching me, and it's really it's been important for me. I hope it's important for the people who listen as well.
0: Oh, yeah, of course,' I'm sure it is.
1: gosh I am just I'm so happy to have you. I learned about who you are because of um this article I did for Three sixty of opera
2: right mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and I realized as I was writing it. I knew about a few opera podcasts. The whole reason I was writing the article is because I wanted to learn about more and not necessarily talking just about opera, but I wanted to kind of center it around that since it was four, three hundred and sixty. And I think we're in this time where we're having this, we are having all of these conversations that have needed to be had for so long. And so many people are just starting their own and we can get so isolated in the opera industry that like, everybody's talking but nobody's listening to each other Mm -hmm. and I thought wouldn't it be cool if we just have one place to go for people who were interested in hearing the conversation to be able to listen to it yeah then I was like oh wow I need to find more podcasts with people why don't I know more what is the matter with me (laughs) and thank goodness I already knew Jamie Allilon had just interviewed her and reached out to her and I was like do you can you tell me somewhere? I know you like, and she tells me about you and I just dive, dove into who you are and what you were doing. And I've just come out with like a complete artist crush on you.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah.
1: No, but you're, you have such an interesting trajectory and you're such a interesting artist. And I would love to actually hear more about what your path has been and what led you to want to start having this conversation around the cultural workers podcast Mm -hmm. so I know that's a big thing but I'm just going to let you go because I love to just hear (laughs) I love to just listen to this kind of story
0: thank you so much I'm happy to be here and I I want to start I don't know how my brain is going to work with my mouth. But Anyway, I want to start by saying amazing. It was amazing to see you come out when I was in Atlanta most recently in February. That was so awesome. to walk. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. walking up the um, aisle after singing and seeing you there after we had just met because we just had lunch, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it was so it, it just warmed my heart to see you there. And it, made, it meant more than I can really tell you. It just meant so much that you were there. Mm-hmm. So on that note, it's a really good way to start with how much I've always wanted to be a part of some sort of community. Even though um, I was raised with a brother and my cousin, I always felt like I was an only child to a great extent. And I'm sure if I ever get around to going back to therapy, we'll dive back into that. But when I was... Um,
1: were you far apart in age from them?
0: No, my co- we were about four four years apart. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am from them. They're closer in age. They're like one year apart from each other. So I started singing when I was four. Mama said I was singing before then. I don't know. I started singing when I was four and asked for singing lessons. And when I think back on it, I wanted singing lessons because people said I sounded really um, good. You know, I sounded like an advanced singer. I could possibly have a voice. And it's taken me, what, 40 years? I've been in the desert, honey. I've been in the desert. 40 years, I've come back. I'm, you know. So mm. I realized at that age that I was responding to what I've always wanted, which is community, which is love, which is this reciprocal love fest that you get from people who are in your life that matter to you. But at that age, you don't realize
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I started my journey of singing when I they, when I went to sing for my mother's friend who was a voice teacher. She wouldn't touch me. She wouldn't touch my wife, no. she wouldn't touch me. But I mean, no, she wouldn't <laughs> touch my voice. She wouldn't. Uh, can't See, I don't pray. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Brown was good. a god fearing, upstanding, good person who lived in a brick house on a hill in South Carolina. Black woman and through a lot of shit. She was not a pedophile or a molester. Okay. There. God, that was horrible. Oh my god, I'm tired. <laughs> oh, and we progress. Uh-huh. <laughs> we learn. Anyway, she wouldn't, she wouldn't train my voice. And so she said, Let's um, I know of this place called The Young Singers of Calum Stephen Ortlip and his wife. They tra- they train the voice very early on, and they aren't having audition, they won't audition her until she was six. I went over there and I auditioned and they accepted me. And that started this journey of, I remember him. He was a Navy man. He built his own um, organ and stuff. I didn't know that until he died a couple of years ago. He was hardcore. And so one day I remember him walking up the aisle and I'm sitting with everybody in there pretty much had money. You know, it was up in Buckhead. It was in the house house of the Candlers who founded Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola. That's the so um I'm right, and so he walked up the aisle and he looked over at me. At this point, I I was about I think eight or nine, and I remember him stopping in the aisle. All his children singing. I'm on the. aisle. He looks over at me, and I don't have many white men looking at me at this point in my life. I had you know <laughs> I'm around black people my whole life. So the white mm-hmm. man look at you, I'm like, what does that mean? First of all, what do you mean? Like what is your whole thing? And so and he kept going. I would find throughout the rest of my life that that was my experience. People would hear me in a crowd of voices. They would point me out, and it's happened most recently, as recently as in 2019 when Porgy and Bess was up at the um, Atlanta Opera. The guys they had in from London, I think they were from, to guest conduct. They pointed me out, and I mean, beautiful, amazing, huge voices, and my voice sails over. So. Mm-hmm. Those are examples, um, at the risk of sounding self-aggrandizing, it's not, it's just been my experience. Those are examples in my life of my voice finding a place in other people, like reaching out and, and really connecting with other people. And I remember also my personality would reach out and connect with other people. I was the class favorite several times in my life. But the flip side of that is, because I always wanted to be a pleaser. I w- always wanted to make sure everybody was happy. I always, And I've always just been a really sweet child. But I would flip out, you know, because there's a flip side to always being expected to be perfect, you know. Mm. Um, and it showed up in my career, without getting into too much detail, it has shown up in my career where I would look and see that other people weren't being treated with the same type of integrity, with the same type of kindness and, and attention. I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So I have taken I have taken the backseat in a lot of things in my life or chosen not to be seen in a lot of um, places of spotlight in a lot of spotlight to kind of step into the spotlight because I just felt like it wasn't equally distributed. <laughs> like the mm. the, um, the type of training wasn't equally distributed, the type of respect for other types of talent, you know, wasn't evenly distributed. It wasn't fair. I've come to realize that there is no way I can help anyone else until I get to a place of stability in my own life. But the lessons I've learned along the way are invaluable. I'm grateful that I've learned them. Now I'm tired of being pole broken at the bottom of the rung. I'm ready to be at the top of the totem pole in some way. I'm being totem pole. I can be, you know, I can give everyone attention. I can. I can learn how to divvy that up and build the right community. But um. The Cultural Workers podcast, fast forwarding to 2019, 2020, came from that still that heart in me to discuss more than just opera. It started with opera singers because I was coming out of Porky and Best and I could access other opera singers. So that's where the Cultural Workers podcast came from. It started where I said, oh, it'd be so great to talk to other people about their work, also how they came to this work, similar to what you're doing, But then I wanted to expand it and talk to people about, like within the context of how you see your work as an opera singer and in the context of everyday life. Because it's not a normal thing to walk around singing high Cs. It's just not, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But it takes work to do it. It is a real Mm -hmm. job. So it all came from a heart of service and connectivity, wanting to connect with a larger group of people. That. Mm-hmm. I hope that all comes together in the edit. You can cut stuff out. Sure. <laughs> Especially that part in the beginning. That was messed
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny, though. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. So, like, when you were coming up through from the time you were six, what kind of education did you choose to really pursue? How did you choose to build your voice?
0: Uh, by the time I got out of Young Singers, I had a really solid foundation, breath support, you know, especially at that age. I was gifted or chosen to get private voice lessons. Somebody just threw some money in my life and gave me some voice lessons with one of the best singers they knew of in Atlanta at the time. And I went through high school as a singer. I was known as a singer. Pam Elrod created an award, first award of its kind at that school, to honor singers because of me. I was the first person to get it. It was the weirdest thing. Mm. I was late to the ceremony because <laughs> I was walking up the hallway when they were clapping and the clapping was dying down. And a kid was coming out of the auditorium from the assembly to go, you've just gotten a war. I was like, oh, really? And I didn't know anything about it. It was the weirdest thing. It was so strange. So my whole life was expected to be a singer. So that therefore I went to university. Now the problem with that, the problem with my time in high school, preparatory school, was that I was going home to a fundamentalist Christian woman who had decided that God called her on the street to be a street preacher. So my brain, I think I had developed a fusing of the brain. I don't think I had a right and left. I just had God and not God. It was like I go to school and I'm constantly, I'm being my mother at school. I'm preaching the gospel and living my life in a skirt and, but inside, I'm this scared little pubescent person who doesn't know the world outside of what I've been taught ever since I was a little girl. And I love my mother. So I'm trying to mm-hmm. be like my mother. I'm emulating her in every way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm setting that backdrop to explain, kind of explain, that when I got out of high school, I was a mental and emotional mess. Different. Like it was, we all have our messes when we get out of high school. Mm-hmm. But it was on a different level. Like, no one (laughs) could really relate to why I was so effed up, you know? Mm. And so I had to figure it out. Having said that, I've gone to, I've never gotten a degree Mm -hmm. because I've gone to schools and I've chosen, I guess I've chosen the schools to be in smaller ponds or whatever, but I always felt like they were doing what had been done before, which is to just use my talent and not really teach me anything because they get money. I start realizing what the university system is. you get money for your student body. And if you can get the underserved or underprivileged or whatever, like a minority like me, then you can uh, get more money for me and get more credit. And more, you know. So they gave me the scholarship, but they were also putting me out there as being this amazing talent that they had nothing to do with. Like I came to you with talent. You weren't giving me training. Mm. You were having me go sing at certain special events and then you could get credit for me.
1: You know what I mean? So you were like a pretty pony. That they were just taking out to try. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. That's what it felt like. I mean, I don't blame the game. I just don't. I didn't understand how to play it.
1: You mm-hmm. know, it's
0: been that game for a long time. I just didn't understand that that was what was going on until I got older and got some therapy, started really doing some research on my own. And my real education became being a professional actor, deciding I was going to act, deciding I was going to. Put singing down like I can stop singing. It's been my whole life. But put I could just not do it professionally, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, sing around the house, make up little ditties, whatever. And then I began, I started understanding what it was to be on stage as a professional in Atlanta mm-hmm. in theater. And that was fulfilling to a point. And then I started writing. So my education really came with getting out into the world and learning in a small in a smaller market like Atlanta theater learning what that was to be on stage and then adding on to that, I would add on my writing and then my singing. So I came back to singing in a more healed place and a a more whole um, place. Hmm. If that makes sense.
1: What do you think in the experience of putting down singing and picking up acting, learning your craft on stage, what started to heal within you to be able to come back to singing? the
0: healing came with recognizing not only recognizing the dynamic dynamism of my voice without the music without the song but also recognizing uh the com- the complete self the whole self the parts of me that were so fissured and broken and denied and lied to and atrophied the thing that um really and i had a child at the time when i came back i had my first child and i was struggling in a lot of ways like i would i was drinking way too much mm-hmm. and i was hiding and i was with the wrong person and i had this little person with me mm-hmm. now and i had to figure out when, we, whenever we have our children we we are looking at ourselves i believe that you know they are a harsh reflection unlike anything else
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i was willing to see myself but in seeing myself doesn't mean that I didn't have parts of me I didn't, I didn't understand how to deal with. So the time I was in Atlanta, which is about 20 years, the first 10 years of it, I was just trying to figure out how to minister to that little girl who had been lied to. I felt like I'd been lied to my whole life, but it wasn't a lie to my mother. My mother didn't think she was lying to me, but it was a lie to me because I wanted a different truth right? Mm,
1: Okay. So you're talking about like what your mother taught you as a kid. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. So it was, it was sorting through all of the the teachings that I got growing up. Her Mm -hmm. survival teachings is what I call them now. Her survival is what she taught me, how she survived and how, how she dealt with all that fear that you have when you just let your children out into the world. She had that by herself, you know, all of it is survival for her. I had to get through the anger, the rage, the self-destruction and in do it. And, and interestingly enough, whenever I got parts, roles in Atlanta, they were, and to this day, actually, they are, they are almost parallel to the lesson I'm needing to learn at the time. Mm. And an example of that is one of my breakout roles in Atlanta or the big role that people started really talking about me in was um, by Marcus Gardley. And oh my God, the name of the name of it is uh is uh, is escaping me now. But I played a role that was almost identical to the way my mother was on the street when she'd preach. It was a preacher role, and I was uh, my community, my church community was being burned. It was during the year that Trayvon Martin's like the anniversary of Trayvon Martin's death, and they were we had a show the night of the verdict with that dude Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, because I got into some healing with my mother. I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm basically playing my mother because she would go downtown and she would yell at people and scream and pray, preach and all this stuff. And I was right next to her, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had to get to a place where I didn't hate my character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't judge my character. You're not supposed to judge or hate your character. And that's an example of how acting helped me get to a healing place i could step outside of myself and also minister to the wound while i'm, I'm doing the work so by the mm-hmm. end of the run i've been able to to work through massage some of those really rough patches within myself i couldn't do that in singing singing is far more uh well opera singing opera singing is far more restrictive and restricting and you're supposed to stand this woman maybe they're changing now opera houses are being called to task in a lot of ways especially in america But I didn't feel like I could do that in opera. First of all, I couldn't get a job. I was like, "Okay, y'all don't because you have to have a certain pedigree," and I decided to veer off the path. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so much about what you just said is so important when you think about: Do we value the industry more than we value the art? And the industry has been set up in a certain way for whatever reason. Many of them very white supremacist. But it's it's so interesting to me when you look at like other parts of performance and of particularly music performance nobody cares about your degree nobody gives a flying (laughs) crap (laughs) like you (laughs) i actually do say fuck on this podcast anyway nobody gives a flying fuck about your degree and they're they care about what you bring to the table at the audition or what they saw from you earlier when they saw you perform and i think it's so interesting the kind of restrictions we have in opera um and like what you say about that like restrictiveness i think it's so we hear that like we hear that from each other yeah. and then we wonder why we can't get butts like butts in the seats nobody nobody needs that kind of stress <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true though
0: Honey, oh Lord, I backed off on the gin. I do a little wine. I haven't drank it about what two, three weeks now, just because I just want to slim down and trim down. But I'm telling you, that was my companion because I was like, I can't talk to anybody about this. It was mind breaking. My mind was breaking because I didn't understand. I think about I think you and I talked about it um, when we met, but. Mm -hmm think about what people study in the university system what makes up the university system is what the equivalent of what people draw on caves like they have created studies on folk art like art that was made by people that had oral traditions which are just as if not more effective than the written tradition to keep communities together University systems are based on studying what people created for themselves to live, survive, and celebrate life, mm. not based on what some white person or approved white person wrote in a book and put it on a shelf. You know, I had that struggle within myself for a long time. I um, I don't struggle with it anymore because I recognize now that this world is made up of so many different realities just because the reality of what someone wants to do in the confines of their white supremacy is not something I identify with or allow in my life anymore, doesn't mean it doesn't have its place of teaching. Hmm. I think that it's important for me not to take on the problems of the world because I was all about protesting, all about beating the drum of stuff I didn't want in my life. And I realized, I started to realize that the more I did that, the more people, even within whatever movement I was working with, the more those types of people would start coming toward me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that anymore. I wanted to figure out what, what were the locks inside of me I needed to unlock? What were the places inside of me I needed to free? Now I feel like I'm in a better place to help, help with world healing, which is one reason I created that musical. I'm creating that musical journey of healing, hoping, and loving for myself, is because I'm tired of being angry. If you're not angry about one thing, you're going to be angry about something else. And then when do you have the time to just take a breath? <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, as far as the restrictive nature of opera, it is. And it's one more thing. And I'm all, mm.
1: <laughs> you are how? not here to do that. You are here to talk. I, I, yes, I, I also really want to hear
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Also
0: feeling like how can people, and I've met so many opera singers who just seem scared mm. they seem scared to be themselves and then i start seeing it in, in, in acting but it's different in acting in the sense that actors are afraid to be themselves but at least you can kind of fudge it when you're speaking when you sing, you're saying it oh what did we just hear we just heard a crack you're thinking about am i going to get this note that i've been struggling with did i have the right teaching did i have the right how can you sing freely when you're always afraid?
1: Mm. Yeah, when it feels like so much is hanging on your, your quote-unquote success of the performance right. of this, it becomes not about the performance of that, about the fun of performing it, about the healing nature of performing it. It is about who's going to approve of this. What are they listening for? The amount of classes we have on like, what are they listening for who gives you what are you singing uh, for is the question right right and, and that's really that really brings me into heal hope love um yeah. which actually just came out i will be releasing this podcast in about just over 2 weeks so everybody mm-hmm. go and check it out it's uh on MinkaWilts.com. and um it is this beautiful beautiful video of this set of this basically concert that you set up but you narrate it and it's beautifully filmed and beautifully recorded and you like take us all on a journey of healing hoping and loving with music that runs the gamut and at one point you said you actually talk about how an opera you know, you've got your Fach system, you've got these little boxes. I always like to remind people like what fach means in German. We literally have a system in an art form that is there to put people in boxes. Fach <laughs> is like Schubfach is a drawer. Oh we were trying to put us in a bunch of little drawers. Wow. <laughs> like wow. Did not know that. Yeah. It is literally it's your box system. What box do you fit in? And um yeah, and then then you haul off and sing a they where I'm like, oh my god. Oh. <laughs> if anyone told her ever told her not to sing that, I will I need to personally come to their house and slap them. <laughs> Thank you. Throttle, throttle, throttle. So that's awesome. So, so yeah, I would love to know because you did that with a grant um. From Bloomington, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so tell me some about that process of creating this program and pitching it and getting the grant. Because I think that's really where we all have to go. Yeah. We all have to learn. What how do you mean? Our, making, learning how to make our own stuff and get it financed right. and just make it happen.
0: Yes, I came up here uh, with my baby and my husband, and I total transparency. Young people like to say that. Um, or they used to, I don't know if it's in anymore or not. But um, <laughs> I came up here with them and I was like, I don't, Bloomington, I mean, I'm not going to university. So it's a very different world in Bloomington if you're not a part of the university. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. from here and his family is here. And so I didn't know how I was going to make any art, work, friends, anything. And so I set about the business of looking for where I could start fitting in somewhere. And I came across the Bloomington Urban Enterprise Association. And it's um, some sort of subsidiary of the, the municipality, the Bloomington municipality. And they were offering Recover Forward grants. And I thought I was filling out a questionnaire to get the beginning process just to see if they'll send me more information. And it comes out, I feel about the thing and they gave me a grant. I was like, oh, just Are you sure? Am I being fished?
2: <laughs> <laughs> is there a principle?
0: Is a principal? Principal? <laughs> He's Like, mm-hmm. I delete, delete. No, I, <laughs> I showed it to my husband and they gave me a little change. I was like, give me some change to make something. And then I had to make something. <laughs> and so... Yeah. Uh, I knew it's going to be music. I didn't know anybody. I could not get anyone from the university to call me back I couldn't get anyone to call me back from video. I didn't know how it was going to happen And so I was getting increasingly more discouraged Um about what I was going to do and christopher bless his heart I'm putting him out on front street because he said well, you know, we're known for our basketballs. Um, because I had to send them a title We're known for our basketball Team here, so um, just things Minka Wilt things out of bounds in Bloomington. I was like, Minka Wilt things, okay, Minka Wilt things out of bounds, and I sit it in, and they took it. I was like, it's because I'm black, and y'all got many of us up here. That's what it is. You need some blackness. BLM just changed everything for black folks. I mean, woo, <laughs> but I took it. I took it. I was grateful. I still am. And what it did for me, though, it gave me something to focus on. It mm-hmm. gave me something to focus on. It gave me an excuse to buy way too much music <laughs> equipment. I bought microphones. It was like I was going to have some backup singers. I have four microphones. <laughs> or what, Gwendolyn? Why does one need four microphones? I got a sound, a PA system that's got Bluetooth. I got a little keyboard. I don't know how to play piano. Uh, and I was just going <laughs> <laughs> Billy Vanillian. I don't know what I was going to do. So I I was like creating all this stuff, still didn't know where the infrastructure, so like the people were going to come from. So I had interviews with people about video and all this stuff, and I ended up finding um, this the woman who played for me, actually. I sent out a notice to the immediate surrounding this neighborhood, Listserv, and she reached out to me. She's a PhD concert pianist. She reached out to me. That's what you see playing on there. And wow. she introduced me to the videographer that did the video. Wonderful, wonderful woman, Marianne Ackerson. You can find out her bio is on the website. And she, is the, she was the helper that got me to a place of being able to create Heal hope, Love. And then once we started creating the music, I mean, I started bringing the music I wanted to sing. That's when the title came, because mm-hmm. that's what I want to do. I don't want to live the rest of my life. I'm I'm forty. I'll be forty-five in October. So I'm old by people's standards, and I don't want to live the rest of my life being miserable and sad and angry. You know, there's plenty of all that reasons to do that. And if they, if people want to do that, fine. Just stay away from my doorstep. But I would rather go to a place in my mind and my body and my voice that brings people more entry points of healing. You know, like when you hear something that resonates with you musically or even if it's spoken word but if you hear that human voice giving you permission to find ways to heal i feel like maybe if i put more of that into the world then it will it will come back to me and then we'll just have this call and response of how we grow like it'll open up more pathways and become bigger and bigger ripples of how we just make that our point of existence our reason for existing you know Hmm. That's all I can do from where I am, and that's that's how Heal the Hope Love came to be. I still have the microphones. I don't know what I'm gonna do with them damn microphones.
1: Well, it looks like you're gonna have to make uh, another one. I mean, you still—it looks like you know you still have not sung out of bounds. The, oh, you know what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I have an idea. I will call you. I will email you my idea. Ooh, because I think wigs will be involved. <laughs> maybe new outfits. I will be channeling some people, all these personalities.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And I think the thing I loved, I got to listen to it the other night. And it was after a hard day. And it occurred to me what it is that really gets me when something's good. Mm. And for me, it is... This person knows how to go to a place that I can't go on my own right now. Mm. And she's taken mm. me by the hand. And she's taking me there. Holy shit, I'm going to cry.
0: Um, I know I to cry.
1: <laughs> and like I get it though. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's what we can do for each other. That's what a lot of these artists on the podcast have done for me in different ways. That's what the art I care most about is doing. And that is something that is very hard to systemize. Mm. To put into a uh. technique.
0: That's a powerful statement. Oh my gosh. That is yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks. But you do that in Heal Hope Love. And there's so um the podcast I just released last week, a week before anyway, is an acting coach who is working specifically with singers getting and musicians getting them to actually feel while they're singing and i know doesn't it sound like such a duh thing but actually when you talk to opera singers about it you're like wait we get to feel too and i was actually wondering while listening to you because i was like you're like i came to sing a song about hope that song has just been going over and over in my head the last few days and i was wondering while you were singing that i was like where is she in that spectrum of being able to actually lean into the feeling or feeling like she still has to be in the control room
0: Mm, mm. that's the question right that is the question
1: because i (laughs) because i also saw it when i got to see you in atlanta Um, what was the name of that concert it was a it was like the end of black history month and it was a big celebration
0: it was a vespers. It was a vespers gospel vespers. I can't remember the quest. A quest for freedom, I think, is what it called.
1: Yeah, and it's, yeah. This, it's the same thing I saw in your performing there that there you do have this ability to lean in. I don't know if you realize that but you have this ability to kind of lean in and yeah. and still have this control of your voice. But it's not mm-hmm. so much about control. It's just yeah, it's thrilling. But I'm curious if that's something you've ever even thought about.
0: Mm -hmm. i have i've been told um when i was younger especially you gotta control that emotion you gotta control that emotion ever since i was very young i can't tell you how many times choir directors have done this to me to me Mm -hmm. and you can tell holding up her hand
1: guys (laughs) (laughs) this is an an audio show
0: sorry (laughs) (laughs) as in like hold back can you you take it down because they'll do it. Sometimes you know when you're when you're under a baton, they'll tell a section to yeah. um to you know diminish or what or, or whatever. Uh but I've had that done to me. So in terms of my emotion, I'll tell you this much: I learned uh it actually was in acting that I learned that that is a part of my mechanism. I don't believe. They'll tell you in acting actually, too, that you have to control, make sure that you're especially when you're doing classical stuff, which I've never been good at. Shakespeare, um, you have to the words are the most important things. I've worked on a lot of new stuff with people, and so the they're very, um, they're very concerned about making sure every single word was perfect as it was on the page. That's what the playwright meant. (laughs) That's your Bible. But what I started to learn, Gwendolyn, is that people who come to see the show, they want to feel the journey. Hmm. They're not gonna remember every single word that you say. They're going, plays are meant to be spoken. They're meant to be acted, you know? And there were plays where I was singing and I would bring the same, I'd have to start singing from a spoken word right into the song. And I brought the same emotion into that song. And I did not, I did not feel like the integrity of the story was there if I did not bring my feeling to it. And I promised myself, I, I, I got tired of trying to please the director and please the playwright. And I promised myself, I'm serving a higher purpose than just a playwright or a director right now. We are people in this room and you don't know what somebody is going through and how much they need to feel connected. And you can't feel connected to a technique. You feel connected to somebody experiencing something with you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I promised myself and the ancestors, all these people, and I also think about how many people went before me who were shut down or stolen from, and they were. And I represent the gamut of races in this body. Mm-hmm. There are so many different races that's, that are running through this blood right now, these veins right now. And the, every single one of them, I didn't come from rich folks, every single one of them were probably beat down and kept from their emotion because they were told, you have—you are here for the purpose to serve the king, or you're here for the purpose to serve your plantation master, or you're here for the purpose of someone else. You don't get to feel. You drop that baby and you get back to work. Mm. And I think about that. I've thought about that throughout my life. And I've been, I've suffered for it. I mean, not nearly as much as they have, I, but definitely I've been um, kind of pushed to the back or ignored or diminished in my talent. People saying she's not that great until I get on that stage.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's not just me. I promise them, I promise me, I promise the people that are to come, the children that are to come. You connect to your emotion. That is your superpower. Your superpower is to heal through things that you've gone through by, by expressing it artistically. You know, so when I'm on a stage and I'm singing, definitely the, the training is important. Getting to that place where you run, run things over and over again until they're, they're rote. And I find, Wendell, I don't know about you, when I know something in my body well enough. It doesn't matter what my emotions do because my body will take over. That machine is going to take over. Mm-hmm. What's the magic, though? The magic that happens once you don't have to worry about technique, that's what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And I do feel it on stage and I am there with the audience. I mean, if I ever get an opportunity to travel the world and have a name and put out uh, an album that everybody wants to buy, I would hope that when everybody comes every single night, they feel that I'm feeling it with them. Hmm. Wouldn't that be a, that would be such a short change of them to be like, okay, I'm just going to get out here and do something, just throw it on stage. And I'm not really, I'm not going to invest the greatest artist in the world. I feel the great the ones i love they invest mm-hmm. in the audience they invest in who's coming there to to get something more than just notes or mm-hmm. words
1: the actual act is for them just as much as it is for the people they're performing for yeah absolutely you talk a little bit about in your socials and this kind of comes back to your podcast and the workers mm-hmm. about this balancing of financing a life as an artist Mm -hmm. and how those don't always have to be the same thing right and I'm curious if you're cool with speaking about how you've done that yourself
0: I haven't done it very well there have been times when I I've had to depend on my partner Mm -hmm. to take care of me or I've gotten a job um, like working at the receptionist desk or whatever and um, I get work and especially then like it feels like it was eons ago, like 10, 20 years ago, feels like a lifetime ago, but I guess it's considered a generation. It feels like people are uh, might be more um, amenable to it now, but I wasn't able to continue doing my art and hold down a full time or nine to five, you know? Mm. I, I have been fortunate enough to have some people in my corner who are willing to support me, like give me a place to sleep and something to eat. But for the most part, I've been homeless and an artist throughout my life, meaning I don't have anything in my name. I don't have very many means like financially, but I get a chance to work. I get a chance to hone my skill um, and my craft. Now I'm in a place where I'm, I'm married to a man who has basically devoted his life and his paycheck to me. And I'm also being able to uh, sing and get money from my singing and my voiceover work now, mm-hmm. um, and that's turned things around a great deal because i don't have a degree i can't teach it doesn't matter how much experience i have i did try to apply for teaching but it won't lift you into any sort of system if you don't have a, a degree from a university a higher education so uh i i see myself as kind of the poster child for the downtrodden <laughs> Like, yeah, this is the path, honey. Get get on your holy socks. <laughs> Spiritual and baby. Holy socks. Walk down the street. I've got plenty of material to work from. I will be writing scripts for the rest of my life. But that's how I've done it, you know? It's um it's not been easy. It's not been glamorous at all. But mm, it has been fulfilling in a lot of ways, mm. um, artistically.
1: One of the things you brought That you wanted to talk about, and I love this is how can we have successful and healthy careers and showbiz? I feel like everything we've been talking about leading up to this has been has been kind of leading to that. Like how do we balance this health of our souls, of our beingness, but also of our bodies and our being able to create circumstances where we're actually stable. I'm curious what your what your thoughts are, if I am to ask you, how can we have successful and healthy careers in showbiz?
0: Well, I think first thing that first thing that needs to happen is not to expect show business to be healthy, and find places in our lives where we can create art first with people who are committed to compassionate um, experiences in that creativity, and from there we can start to redefine what the business of show is. I think that's that's my pie in the sky idea. Meaning if I get a smaller, small enough group of people together who actually do care about um, supporting one another with our artwork, you know, then we create something really beautiful and figure out ethical ways to monetize it mm-hmm. and build from there, you know, build from a place not depending on and I think a lot of young people are doing that now. I think the internet and social media, though it has been adulterated, I think, and taken over by big conglomerations or whatever. I think that that's how young people are seeing it now. You know, create. I guess what they used to do in Europe, and to a great extent, people would come together in little coffee shops and and discuss ideas and find ways to support each other when they were making their art, and then they would start monetizing the best way they could, you know, having small shows. I think democratizing it is a matter of creating smaller venues of um, presenting it, you know, salons and that sort of thing. Uh, But that's just that's just me spitballing and things that I've always wanted. You know, I've always wanted these smaller expressions of art and then figuring out how to um, sell them to the world. Mm -hmm. As far as getting to that place of being in a position of great influence in show business, I think that there are people that are reaching back. I think that's the only way that it's gonna really work is that people get to a place of notoriety and success and then they reach back to invest in the communities where they've, from where they've come. Mm -hmm. I also like the idea that they have, I can't remember what I was looking at, but people were talking about mental health in the art space. Have you heard about this? Can't remember the name of it, but I've I've heard it bandied about People talking more about you know, creating um, mental health spaces for artists.
1: Mm. And what so would that, that look like? I don't know if I've seen that.
0: Um, I don't know how they did it, but I think creating talking spaces or therapists who are specifically tuned into what the trappings of being an artist are. Like the pitfalls of being an artist,
1: mm-hmm. the
0: places you can the dark places you can go when you're alone as an artist. Mm. Um that that's what I understand, but I have to look at it. I have to look more in depth, but I feel like that's something mushrooming up more and more mm-hmm. on online.
1: And I like what you're talking about with the small um, mm-hmm. one thing I keep coming back to and talking to people and listening to listening to other people's conversations is it's like we took by creating the industry that we have. And I'm talking a lot of show business now we took the artist out of the community and glorified that like it's it's wonderful you are making it if you are going from city to city living out of a suitcase blessing all these different cities with your with your wonderful and amazing talents and you're not seeing anyone that who really means anything to you except right. for a few times a month right. maybe and mm-hmm. and i have seen how that's unhealthy for the artist and it's always glorified as you know this the sacrifice for for the art but then you think mm-hmm. what is the artist what is the art sacrificing because it's mm-hmm. not rooted in community
2: This
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. just came up to me while you were saying that because i thought you know yeah these smaller things maybe there is more of an opportunity to get that kind of support yeah to be ethical with your artists, but also that opportunity to be in service to a community and speak for a community. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of great conversations going on right now. One specifically I'm thinking about that I was listening to recently in the Triloquy podcast. I don't know if you know, talking about you know whether or not burning it to the ground is an option. And I keep thinking, you know what? Maybe we don't have to burn it to the ground. It's kind of burning itself to the ground in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Maybe our role is just ignoring that and starting from scratch. A scary concept.
0: (laughs) It is because I strongly believe that we are composites of everything we've been taught. Mm. And when you want to start something anew, you have to look at the parts of you that you want to uh, abandon the parts of you that are destroying you the parts of you that are identifiable with the thing that has oppressed you or hurt you and when you start over how, what is the dialogue what is the conversation how are we coming into conversation with each other in a way that's different from what was before mm. and that is scary i mean when you think about how many people how we have been inundated and embedded with all of these concepts of success and celebrity and the values, what is valued and what is devalued, what is going to be coming to the table, you know, when you build something from from scratch. And what that, what you're, I love everything you just said. And what you're saying that made me think of is what new classical art forms would look like you know, if we started from scratch. Would it be all inclusive? Would we find new ways to include what is considered folk music or traditional community music, which opera basically is and was, it's just so weird. Anyway, mm. would we find new ways to create that
2: mm.
0: and build something, a new classical, a new traditional, a new world of, of tradition? because that's what I think that that's an enviable title to hold. When you tell someone that something is traditional, you're telling them that that is the canon by which you measure all other things. Mm. And if anything is outside of that canon, outside of that measurement, then it is other and susceptible to being destroyed. Mm. And that frightens people who have been who have been under that umbrella of protection, that it's a false sense of security, but they have been under that sense of security their entire lives
1: mm.
0: for generations, right?
1: And one thing that occurred to me while you were talking is like, when I think of traditional music, a lot of traditions I think of are folk traditions. It's almost like all of these, this community-based music is music that has a family. Mm-hmm. And by putting opera on a pedestal, by putting classical musical music on this pedestal, where Really, just a few scholars said these are the things that have stood the test of time, and uh, <laughs> and it's almost like we orphaned it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's music. Without say more a family. about that. Orphaned it? It's, well, it, uh, it's music without a family. It can exist in any in any capacity and not necessarily say anything about anyone. Wow. But when it does it right, it does it amazingly. Like that's why. Yep. That's why I call it making yep. an opera because I want, I want to see opera be everything that it can be. Mm-hmm. I want to see it take me on a journey like that, take me on a tour of my emotions right. that I can't handle. Mm-hmm. I know that opera can do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: And there are, there are little opera houses and little companies that have that kind of community. And working mm. in them is so healing, getting that mm. experience, you know? Wow. Have you had that? Never. Mm.
0: I would love it. It's I had a... <laughs> yeah. Where, where did you... Where were you?
1: Uh, shout out to Lamplighters Theater in San Francisco. Nice. They have a hardcore and dedicated community. Wow. It's a bunch of friends who run it and they hire... They hire younger singers often, but also it's just it's multi-generational, which I love. They hire a lot of young singers for some of the main parts and for choruses often at most an honorarium. I mean, it's not not necessarily the best paid experience, but it is going to be an experience where you are where you're just having a freaking frolic on stage. Oh singing so wandered in Sullivan. With a lot of people who are just (laughs) proud to be there Mm -hmm. and uplifting each other. I mean, maybe I was just in a really great show. Sometimes it's a kismet that's attached to a show and it's just the right set of people together at the right time. Yeah. But I did get a feeling that that was pretty deep there.
0: Oh, I would love, and I think that there should be more and more places. That's another thing. We centralize in one location, like the Met is supposed to be the pinnacle of all things, and La Scala is supposed to be the pinnacle of all things opera. And it's like, okay, could we, could we do more like those small places you just mentioned? Name of, what's the name again? Lamplighters, music theater. Lamplighters. No, lovely. Yeah, more places like that. I would love to work with more people who want to explore their voices in different ways, you know? Mm-hmm. opera singers who want to explore their voices in different ways and, and work with other people who do different things with their, their voices and their instruments. And I've, I really believe that it's going to happen in my life because I've wanted it for so long. I'm going to stop standing my way and waiting for other people to... I'm talking so fast. When I get excited, that's what happens. Sorry.
2: <laughs> I, am
0: going, <laughs> I am going to create it for myself. And I wish that more and more people would do that. Um, create what they want to see because... The, the savior isn't coming, you know, the savior is already here and it's within us. It's within our ability. All these things we've put so much time and energy into cultivating. Those are the tools. Mm-hmm. And if you need some another tool that you haven't learned how to use or, or make, it will come create what you're creating, create what you have the ability to create and you will get the help you need. I'm, I know that that's true. I know it's true. So you just encouraged me to keep going. Is what you did because mm. like when I was I was texting you I was like why do I even do this shit why do I keep doing this why am I still alive could I just go into another incarnation
1: mm.
0: and when you gave me those really encouraging words about the piece, it made me go yeah so I've just laid a f- that because that's just one brick mm-hmm. right I have other bricks I can make and I think that that's what we need to focus on you know I was I got that from Will Smith I'm listening to his audio book. And uh, his daddy, there's a story about a, a brick and a wall or whatever in the beginning. But it's true. You know, you focus on that one brick every day. You just create another one and another one until you build the bridge or the wall or whatever you want to build.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it'll happen, you know. Mm-hmm. I really believe that.
1: And we never know what the... It's funny because we're like over here, like putting together these bricks. And... The fallacy of this whole industry pipeline and thinking that we have to be, we have to do this and this and this and this and this in that Uh order, or we're failing, is we're over here standing here with a brick and all we see is like a, like, all we, we think we know what the house is supposed to look like. We have the Mm -hmm. expectation that the house looked this way. Whereas if we just keep putting the brick down, doing a thing, doing the next thing that feels right. Right. You have no idea what that house is going to look like. Yeah, it's going to be way cooler than anyone else could have designed for you.
0: That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Or if it's even going to be a house, it could be something leading to something much greater, like a. Hall. It could be leading to a huge mansion. It could lead to anything. You know, it could be. It could be any number of things, because as we build, as we build, we our desires sometimes change.
2: Mm-hmm. know
0: so how we want to express ourselves change and i it would be so sad for me to live my life one way just because that's what i was told i was supposed to do
1: mm-hmm.
0: it may have i mean i've had my share of heartbreak and i think we all have but at least i know how i feel about things mm. i know how i feel i know how i think and i'm not regurgitating someone else's um concepts
1: mm. And that almost like moves us out of any sort of category. Mm -hmm. Like we're over here talking about opera and classical music. And I agree. A lot of these things are like a minuet is a minuet. Like this is what proposes a minuet. Like an opera is an opera. This is what we mean when we say that. But we've set them. This one thing I love about listening to the Trilogy podcast is like talking about how we've just set it over here. Mm -hmm. And like almost quarantined it from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what's going on. And that kind of leads me into what you, the other subject you brought, which was how can more perceived strictly disciplined artists like classical musicians, dancers, or actors come together and create more often without ego with people who are considered or perceived less important practitioners. Can you talk to me more about what that means in your mind?
0: Um, we touched on it earlier, I believe, and and that's just people who are seen as more, pull, and I don't know if you know the term pulled up, Mm-mm. meaning somebody who has more pedigree, has more degrees, they are rubbing elbows with people with lots more money, um, everybody that they know uh, smells real good, they smell real expensive, they look real expensive. <laughs> And that's the world of opera, you know. That's the world that I've seen of opera. And in the world where I was educated, preparatory school, those people have money. Mm-hmm. And the and and I think the wildest thing about money, when I think about money, is that it is made by such dirty in such dirty ways. How we have put a, a dollar sign on everything in this world was built on the backs of human beings in horrible. Horrific ways. Not to go too far into that. When I think about the people that that entertain those people, entertain the echelon in that <clears throat> that group of people, you go through you go through a lot of shit. If you aren't coming for money to be able to pay for your voice lessons or your music lessons, or you have a patron who is putting money in your life and you feel beholden to them, whether they want you to or not, if you do or not, the system of the extremely talented, but more than likely very poor, entertaining the wealthy, and more than likely very indifferent (laughs) people, privileged people. That dynamic is what I mean. People who are perceived as well, well well-trained, they oftentimes come from little to no means, but they they identify with the wealthy because they are in that world. They're in that pipeline, as you say, that reciprocation. If you go outside of that structure and you look at people who learn to play on their own, people who, uh, blues singers, um, jazz musicians, I'm just saying that privilege is what you are afforded. Like When people say that you have a better, you're, you're seen as in a higher echelon mm-hmm. if, you are, if you've spent all these years of training and austerity and removing yourself from regular people to play Mozart. To play the people that were considered, like you were saying, people that are considered on a higher level, you know, they've been given approval by people with money is basically mm-hmm. what I'm saying. And the people in a more traditional setting, say, learning blues music, gospel music, you know, that comes from a dark, a deeper, not darker, but it comes from a, a, a earthier place, a place that doesn't have the means, you know, it feels like mm-hmm. everything is separated by money like the demarcation of how much money is recognizing your life. If people with money are recognizing your life, then you are valued. Mm. If they're not recognizing your life, you're not valued. Mm-hmm. You know, And that comes with being a European classical musician or dancer or painter. For me, I don't know if it's irony or what it's called, but I feel like it's dishonest because the people that are creating that work are oftentimes struggling to find housing, food, pay for their materials, pay for their training. Mm-hmm. And so it just doesn't jive with me. It doesn't make sense to me that we wouldn't celebrate both types of artists mm-hmm. in the same space as often as we could. So bringing a blues singer together with a ballet dancer or a jazz singer, and they're doing it more and more that fusion, but this is where it gets very discomforting for me or very discouraging for me. The The... Nature of conversation, apart from the work itself, the nature of conversation with those people from those different worlds, like classical, classically trained artists, speaking honestly with artists who are self-trained.
2: Mm.
0: People coming together in spaces and having conversations about self, about soul, about what it does to us when we create art for ourselves and what it does to us when we create art just to get a check. Mm. Those kinds of conversations can easily be marbled into the worlds of the self-trained and the classically trained artist, mm-hmm. and imagining what that could create, you know, consistently. If we did that, and not just to make not just to um, as a a show-off piece like one of those one of those novelty pieces, but like an ongoing conversation of uh, how we would create together in those kinds of spaces. Atlanta Ballet did one where they had a hip-hop artist and, and dancers come together, like ballet mm-hmm. dancers with hip-hop theme or whatever. And that's cool, but I'm like, y'all ain't going deep enough. Go deeper. And let's mm-hmm. see what happens if we if we just stop creating what we've been taught, we, how we've been trained to create and go sit around the campfire and just start spitting out stories and see if somebody gets inspired to pull out a guitar or or get up and do a jig or teach somebody how to rap who's all, all they've ever done is do Shakespeare. You know, something like that. I think that would be interesting to see.
1: Mm. I can't wait to see you make it. Ah! <laughs> I think it'd be great.
0: I got to get in those spaces first. I got to buy myself a Chanel or something or other. I'll just put C and C. I'll just put, I'll draw it on my shirt and be like,
1: C, <laughs> C, C. C. up? Uh, <laughs> So you are a mother and you speak about it in your beautiful program as well. And I thought it would be cool to close with what are your hopes for your child Mm. in the way that she sees you, but also in the way that you're able to show her what expression is and what it means to express yourself?
0: Well, I have a 19-year-old and I have a three-year-old and both of them, I wish, the one thing I wish for both of them is to take time to find out what they want.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that means that there's an artistry in that as well. There's an artistry in living a well-lived life. And it comes from a lot of practicing practicing self-awareness in every major phase of your life, but also those incremental phases in between. So mm-hmm. I guess ultimately without me getting through whatever, whatever I'm getting, I would hope that they see a woman And be inspired by the woman in me who is honest when I fail and who embraces my success. I think when you come from a certain socioeconomic background, you are taught to act accordingly. And uh, I've been taught to be a failure more than a success. And I'm fighting against that.
1: (sighs) Thank you so much, Minga.
0: Gwendolyn,
1: you're so awesome.
0: I am so grateful. Thank you, Jamie. I know you're somewhere doing something fabulous. I'm so grateful that she introduced us.
1: You are a gift. <laughs> you are a gift. And that, my friends, was Minka Wiltz. You can follow her on Instagram at MinkaWiltz777. That's M I N K A W I L T Z. 777 and you can see Heal hope love on her website www.minkawilts.com her podcast the cultural workers podcast is in video format on her youtube channel or in audio wherever you get podcasts keep up with this podcast on instagram at making it an opera and support us by telling your friends rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts and pitch in some money by donating on ko-fi You can find the link when you go to www.makinitandopera.com. Links, as always, will be in the show notes. We'll be back eh, two or three weeks from now. If you've been watching your feet, you've probably realized that by now. See you then. Making It an Opera is a production of Sounds Like Cool Studios with editing by me, Gwendolyn Kuhlman.